0: Welcome back to the official SASTA podcast from the main man at SASTA, Jason Lemkin or Jason LK on Twitter and me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC at H Stebbings on Snapchat. Now today, I'm so excited to bring you an incredible guest in the form of Matt Garrett, who's currently running the machine that is Salesforce Ventures with the mandate to build out Salesforce's ecosystem of partners with equity investments. And Matt has led key strategic investments at Salesforce in companies such as Gainsight, Who've been on the show before? Invoker, again, have been on the show before, as well as Anaplan and InsideSales.com, just to name a few. Prior to Salesforce, Matt was a VP at the prestigious SaaS investor Battery Ventures. But I have to say quickly, before we dive into the show, stay with Matt. I'm currently reading Jason Aaron Ross's new book, From Impossible to Inevitable. And genuinely, without the bias, it's such a fantastic read and really recommend it. However, probably shouldn't have missed Jason that I haven't fully read it already. However, Enough from me, so I'm now delighted to welcome Matt Garrett at Salesforce Ventures. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Matt, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the official SASTA podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be on the podcast. Now, I'd like to start by hearing a little about you and how you came to be VP at Salesforce Ventures. Sure. So I joined Salesforce
1: about 3 years ago. I started in the Corporate Development group focused on M&A and doing some investments. And about a year and a half ago, we the investment program had been growing tremendously. We were getting a tremendous amount of traction in the marketplace, and we just saw this massive opportunity to really uh, be at the forefront of enterprise investing at the corporate venture level and really build a, a really strong brand. And we saw we had all these assets and utilities uh, at, our, at our disposal to really help these companies, grow these companies. And be a really significant player in the investment world. So I thought it was a great opportunity and I raised my hand and said, I'd be happy to take what we had already built, which was, which was quite mature at the time in terms of the, the motion and really build it and formalize it, build out the whole back end, the reporting, the infrastructure, refine the strategy a bit, and then really focus on the marketing uh, aspect of it. So then before that, I was at Battery Ventures for a number of years uh, on the West Coast office. And then prior in my career, I was uh, an engineer and a very different kind of engineer. I was a material
0: science engineer, so made a bit of a transition. I'm really intrigued because you said about the traction there for Salesforce in the early days of their uh, kind of formalizing the fund and the structure. And so I'm intrigued to hear what you think Salesforce did right that gave you the opportunity to really formalize it and put your hand up and say, I'll take the lead on this one. Sure. I think
1: there's a few things. One is we really took our time. We've been investing for about six years before we decided to, to formalize it. And we learned a lot along the way. We started making much smaller investments, many fewer investments, and we saw what worked and what didn't work. And so I think that's one thing. And if you look at the successful corporate venture arms like Qualcomm, they did the same thing. A lot of these other venture arms, that's that's the path that they take. They don't just come in and say, we're going to invest 50, 100 million in a year. That was one aspect. The other aspect, though, is that we're really set up to be successful by uh, by how we're built. And there's a few key ingredients. One is uh, our ceo is by nature he's a an entrepreneur he disrupted an industry so he's very he's acutely aware of you know the need to make sure you understand what's going on in the startup ecosystem and finding ways to partner with them and make sure you're staying relevant so so that's one aspect also the people that run much of the company they're also uh, former entrepreneurs that so they grew up with the business. So if I had to say, you know, there's one key ingredient. It's really, the, it's really people. It's people who are from the entrepreneurial ecosystem and they really understand the importance of being involved in that. The second aspect really is our platform, in that we ha- we have a natural way of working with and partnering with companies. So that it's easy for them to plug in. We have um, Force.com and Heroku companies can build can build their companies on our platforms. They can integrate with our products through app exchange. So it makes there's a very natural way for us to collaborate and partner with them without without with these companies we invest in without creating these really
0: rigid partnering structures. Talking talking of rigid partnering structures, I'd love to hear about kind of your mandate and how how that plays itself out and whether there is tie-ins to the platform within that.
1: Absolutely. Every investment we make, we always have an executive sponsor, and that's generally someone at the product level. And that's really where where our alignment uh, starts, in in where we where we start to see a strategic fit. And so, when you think about what our what our mandate is, we're really building out this ecosystem of partners, and it's partners that we invest in. And what that does is essentially it allows us to access all this innovation that's being developed by these companies and bring it into our platform and then, and then it makes our product, our platform much stickier. We're able to offer that through our product to our customers. And so it helps the companies that we invest in and then also really helps our, our customers ultimately. So, and that's really what drives. We're always thinking like what's going to make the customer more successful. That's how we, we think about it. And that's really what the mandate is, is it's customer driven investment and in building out this ecosystem of partners. In terms of actually how that manifests, like I said, we always really start and focus at the product level. A great example of that as a company we invested in Bidyard. We were an early investor there And through that process, we introduced them to several of our product executives, and and they were able to integrate across all of our product clouds. And now they're a great partner. They work with many of our customers like Honeywell. And then so that's been great on the strategic side. But then we've also been able to help them after we invested. They were still pretty early on. We were able to introduce them to other investors and help them secure additional funding. And so that's, that's how we like to think about how we partner with people and how we work with them and how we can make them more successful.
0: I'm really intrigued then partners coming into the investment or the partnership itself. What are the things that they most look for from, from Salesforce? What are the main reasons they look to join? Is there a commonality like they want access to your, your hiring network or follow on funding or platform ability? There's three things. There's a lot of, there's a lot of different benefits that they
1: get from uh, working with us, but there's three that we really focus on. One is just the credibility. They get a tremendous amount of credibility with our executive team internally, and also with our customer base. So once we invest, you just that just provides a, a tremendous amount of credibility. Uh, we also give them a lot of access to our executives before the during the diligence process. As I mentioned, introducing the product executives, but then during and then after the investment, and that's where the third piece comes in is that we really provide a lot of advice. And we like the way we like to think about it is. We started as a, we were a startup at one point. We've gone into a multi-billion-dollar company, and we've learned a lot along the way. And we're making ourselves available so that if you have a question on how do I think about pricing, how do I have very specific questions around pricing, how do I think about what KPIs should I be looking at from the finance world to help drive certain outcomes and sales? And so we can provide really tactical advice as opposed to just coming in and being very general and bringing someone from uh, marketing who doesn't know about SaaS businesses, who's a generally a great marketer, but maybe can't provide
0: the, the concrete, exact, specific sort of guidance that these companies want. And you mentioned the nitty-gritty there and kind of the deep matrix. So, I want to discuss the diligence process for you at Salesforce now and, and what you really hone in on and how this differs potentially from traditional venture funds.
1: So everything with us always starts at the strategic level. And so we sit alongside all of our product executives and we're always thinking about, you know, what companies are we going to acquire? What products are we going to build and where do we need to partner? And when we think about partnering, we like to invest to make that partnership stronger. So the first thing is really getting a product team and some of the engineers from one of the product teams involved very early so that they can assess the strategic fit, assess the technology. And the nice thing is, if you if you've ever worked at a venture, a traditional institutional venture firm, it's the same process, but generally you're much further down the path before you can find the best product person and the best engineering team to really help you assess this company. You know, we can spin that up immediately. And so once we once we have it's like, wow, this is this is an amazing technology, this is an amazing company, this is gonna be really great for our customers. Um then we also start to look at some of the financial considerations as well. So we do look at the financial aspect and the and the team dynamics, and we want to make sure that you know this is money well spent not only to drive a strategic relationship but also
0: that financially, that's gonna that this will make sense. I'm intrigued about kind of you mentioned the, the process there of investing in startups with Salesforce being a, a very differentiated investor to more traditional VCs. How does the investment decision making process differ itself? Do you have Monday morning partner meetings and do the standard VC uh, investment process? We do.
1: Our process is we have Monday morning partner meetings and we talk about any new deals coming in. And I have two employees in London, one in Japan, and two investment professionals here. So it's a, it's, a global, it's a global group that we're working with. But we then work with the product teams, the product executives, the GM of our products to make sure that they're supportive. John Samorjai, who runs all of corporate development, we need to get his support. For the investment as well, and then ultimately we send a you know a, a, an investment memo to our executive team that goes all the way up to um, Mark Benioff, our CEO, for final approval. So it's a it's a pretty rigorous process that we go through.
0: And, and how do you look to work then with other institutional investors in the environment? You know, do you find yourself largely drawn to co-investing with corporates too?
1: We view ourselves really as strategic. We're looking in the cloud space uh, broadly, and we look at those investors who are most you know creative to what we're trying to do. And that tends to be institutional investors. They're great partners. We provide the uh, value from we can help accelerate the growth of these companies, and we invested alongside alongside them, and they're going to be the ones who provide the ongoing governance and oversight. And and, and uh, they're typically leading rounds. So it's a very symbiotic relationship with them.
0: Uh, and uh, then in terms of you mentioned acquisitions and which companies you're potentially looking to buy, how does MA work within Salesforce Ventures with regards to Do you need to have prior investments in them at a seed or a Series A stage? Do you sell your portfolio? companies to your competitors potentially.
1: So the way we again, the way we think about the investments, it's different than the M and A. We're really it's about building this ecosystem of partners and making our customers more successful by investing and, and giving them access to that innovation. Time to time, we do acquire some of our company, and really what the decision is is we want to make that investment, we want to partner, and then as we get to know a company, we think ultimately that there's going to be more value by acquiring the company than sometimes we will. A good example of that is Steelbrick. We are an investor in Steelbrick. Um, we got to know them really helped us make a decision really quickly on the acquisition and and, and, you know acquiring a company is kind of like dating you want to get to know them before you before you decide to make that acquisition and make sure that both sides it's going to be successful on both sides if you were to roll it up we acquire a minority of the investments we've made Uh, we've had five companies go public Um, a few dozen of our companies have been acquired we've only acquired a handful of those so it's not the main purpose or the strategic intent uh, of the investment program Mm
0: -hmm. And and you, meant, you mentioned there, obviously, the successful companies, those who have gone public, those that have been acquired. You've seen an array coming through Salesforce's offices who have been incredibly successful. So, how has this affected your pattern recognition and how has that developed over time?
1: You know, I think that given we only invest in enterprise cloud companies, our pattern recognition is, is fantastic because... When you're, you know, when you're only looking at those types of companies, you really get a a good sense of what are the key metrics, what are the
0: types of things you want to look for in entrepreneurs. So it helps out tremendously. Mm -hmm. And when looking at those entrepreneurs, then what are the commonalities you've seen in the great ones?
1: There's a few things that stand
0: out. One is on the enterprise side, you typically
1: are looking for more experienced entrepreneurs. Uh, enterprise software is something you really have to have done for a while to be able to understand how to build product and sell into it. But then there's also that that just insane passion and curiosity to just keep driving and keep turning over the next uh you know finding the answer to the next question you can see that in the diligent process if you if you come up with some roadblocks or some questions or you meet a company early on the really great ones boy if you meet with them two three six months later they've just they continue to make progress continue to grow Um, you know, the example I gave with Vidyard, every time I was with Michael Litt, I mean, he would just come in and he would he had knocked off another partnership with someone else with inside Salesforce. And then, you know, I think maybe one of the third the third thing we, we hit on a little bit, what you tend to see in the in the application layer for enterprise is you have these sort of larger than life, very big personality CEOs. And I, I think you you um, because a lot of times it's it's a very sales
0: and marketing driven organization. So you, you, you see that a lot. And, and how much of a role do you think that plays then in CEOs taking on the personas that potentially isn't true to their real character?
1: Well, I think it has to be
0: true to their real
1: character. I think you have to find find a bit of that in yourself. And maybe that's not hundred percent, you know, the easiest to do to, to convey this, this larger than life persona. I think if it's not genuine and it's not true, it will come across as, you know, artificial and it won't be successful. So I think it's maybe locking into that aspect of your personality and really driving that home. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you have to, it's, it's sort of an irrational thing that you're asking people to do. Hey, you know, come work for me we're going to change the world we're going to make this amazing product you're going to take less money for now but boy you're going to see a bunch on the back end and we're going to make something great so i think you you really have to be able to paint this vision and lock everyone in your organization around that and if you don't you know you're just you're just you, you got to continually do these impossible things and you're always going into these valleys of death in these gray areas and it's uncomfortable. And if you as a CEO can't sort of charge ahead and make other people feel good about it and move ahead, you know, there's so many times along that journey that you can lose people. So I think it's absolutely necessary to have that capability.
0: I, I recently read a HBR case study on uh, CEOs presenting emotion to their employees, uh, and it presented an interesting question as to how much emotion is too much and how much is too cold. You know, what makes one personable, what doesn't? Where's your, where, what's your view on this?
1: Again, I think it comes down to the person, and I think there's some. CEOs that can be very calm and calculated and not show a lot of emotion and that's their persona but I think if they're genuine and the people feel that they really care then I think that's fine and if they lead by example people will fall in line I think there's some that are much fiery much more much fire much more fiery emotional and and they lead that way i think a little too much of that and you'll lose people but i think if done appropriately and strategically you can motivate people you know you see this in coaches all the time they know when to berate certain players they know when to compliment certain players and you really have to just be in tune with the people that work for you and understand what what are the what are the i don't want to say levers to pull because it sounds manipulative but what's the best people people respond
0: differently yeah absolutely and, and i want to dive into a quick fire now called the 60 second sass So 60 seconds per answer um five quick questions how does that sound yes so the most challenging element of your job now at salesforce ventures the scale of what we're doing—we have 106, we have over 150 portfolio companies globally across, you know, 13 countries and dealing with an ever-expanding product line. I think just the, the scope and the extent of what we're what we're doing is is—it's a great opportunity, but it's challenging. You spoke about imbuing founder vision on on others there with a the crazy idea. Who do you think has been the best at imbuing this vision on a workforce?
1: I think Nick Meadow's been phenomenal at it. If you look at the space, he's from Gamesight, If you look at the space that he went into, it was hard to tell much differentiation amongst the companies when he first entered. And he's just done a phenomenal job of really owning that message, really understanding what the pain point is, being able to convey that to customers and, and, and build a conference around it and be
0: seen as the world expert in customer success. And I think he's just done a phenomenal job there. And then balancing growth and reducing burn in today's SaaS economy. What are your thoughts? So you've seen companies going less for 100% year-over-year growth
1: and trying to maintain north of 50%, 60%, 70% and reducing burn. That's consistent with what you're seeing uh, in public companies. They're trying to get more profitable and demonstrating that the SaaS model absolutely works. And so I think that people are balancing it. It's not They're not shifted completely profitability and they're not going you know completely towards growth i think it's more of a of a balancing act now
0: and then what's your favorite SaaS resource that's
1: kind of been most formative to you sas jason lemkin as saster has been great his content's great he's super passionate about it he's one of these guys he's an entrepreneur at heart he's one of these guys who's just maniacal he can't help himself he has to answer questions on quora what he's built
0: with uh, Saster has been nothing short of phenomenal. Yeah, Jason's done incredibly well. Uh, and then if startups don't raise with Salesforce, what's the reason they choose not to? Is there a common, oh, like we think you're a traditional corporate venture fund? Uh, what's the reason they don't?
1: Well, if they some aren't just aren't just a good fit, but assuming they're a fit and we're interested in and in, in it doesn't work out, it it rarely happens. I think we've done a great job of building the brand where it just it rarely happens. I think there's an old legacy view that somehow corporates, I don't know if I should take money, what are the trade-offs, but I think if you just think about corporate investors and as any other investor and you're thinking about constructing your cap table. There's trade-offs with any investor, institutional investor, um, corporate investor. So I always say horses for courses. And I think we've done a phenomenal job of really making it advantageous to take money. We don't, we don't ask for onerous things that are going to make compromise the company's ability to exit. We've demonstrated that we've had several dozen companies, uh, get acquired. We've had five IPOs. So I think. That, that that challenge has really gone away. But there's still some people that hold on to that legacy view of, oh, I don't know if I should take money from a corporate investor.
0: And, and moving to a overview stance, so don't worry, no no 60-second requirements. Take a breather. Um, and taking a step back, but to focus on the wider environment, um, in this vein, what's your attitude to the recent pessimism in the Valley? You know, Will SaaS valuations continue to fall, do you think?
1: It's hard to predict how the market's going to behave. We take a very long-term view. We think about it from the strategic aspect. We think we're early days of the whole convergence of moving, uh, moving to the cloud. And there's going to be a tremendous amount of value created here. So we tend to not get too caught up in the day-to-day. Our valuation is too high, too low. There's going to be periods of time when they're a little too high. We think we did see that, and they corrected a bit, and they seem to be at a reasonable reasonable spot now. But we just think about it long-term. There's just a phenomenal amount of companies that are creating a ton of value. Um, We have companies in our portfolio like DocuSign and MuleSoft that just continue to Grow phenomenally well, companies like Twilio. So we're just, we, we really think it's, you, you can't get caught up on the day to day uh, short term valuations because that's more of a, I think, a public
0: market thing and really look for transformative companies and back those companies. And talking of transformative companies in cloud, where do you see the biggest opportunities in the cloud space?
1: We see a tremendous amount of time in predictive intelligence, um, transforming enterprise software from a system of record, from a system of intelligence. Um, taking that and then overlaying that on top of uh, messaging applications and bots to making it where people can readily access all this information more easily on mobile phones through voice through messaging we think those are some of the some of the
0: most transformative trends that we're seeing right now that that will potentially really unlock mobile in a whole new way and we mentioned valuation there and and how much to, of a role does valuation play in your investment decision making process when making the investments themselves is it pivotal we definitely
1: consider it. We really focus on the strategic tie in and we let the institutional investors set valuation. If, if the valuation is just way out of line, then we, uh, we, we won't invest and we can also think about if we think it's, uh, we really think it's a great partner, but the valuation is, is a, a bit unreasonable, but not, uh, not insane. We can also level set the amount that we invest based on that
0: well matt thank you so much for coming on the show today it's been an absolute pleasure hearing about you and salesforce's amazing journey into the venture ecosystem so thank you so much for sharing it with us today thank you so much it's been a pleasure talking to you and a big fan of the podcast and I'd like to say again, a huge thank you to Matt for giving up his time to stay to be on the show. As I said, it really was so fantastic to hear the incredible journey that Salesforce have been on from corporate VC to the leaders in cloud investing. So a huge thank you to him for sharing that journey with us. And also, if you're loving everything from Sasta, then you should check us out at sasta.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-R.com. Or you can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter at Jason LK or me on Snapchat at H I'd absolutely love to see you there. As always, so grateful for all your support and look very forward to bringing you Monday's episode.